This is the Millennial Millionaire Podcast. They're focused on larger multifamily syndications in the Southeast and Midwest. So, you know, five to $50 million, you know, 80 to 500 unit properties. Um, and that was August of 2016. Um, and since I've been there, we've acquired around 4,000 units, around $280 million worth. And You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. Hey, what is going on, everyone? This is Jonathan, host of the Millennial Millionaire Podcast. For any first-time listeners, I'm a 26-year-old creative strategy buy-and-hold investor focusing on the Southeast. Today, we have an awesome guest, someone that I've known for quite some time. We went to school together, actually, at Hofstra, where neither of us were thinking or investing in real estate uh, at that time. And uh, it's funny how things happen, and we drifted apart for a couple of years, didn't really talk all that much. Uh, he played soccer, I played golf. Uh, we were friends at the time, and then you know, life gets in the way. Uh, he started actually working at a syndication firm in Long Island and my path, whatever you want to call that, working uh, down in Raleigh and then coming back here doing the real estate investing. Um, we both saw we were kind of doing that. So we reconnected again. He's been doing some awesome stuff. He's part of a great group, the Toro group in Long Island. Um, I've been there a couple of times, seen what they're doing. Uh, and John, uh, who Chris works for, is someone that I really admire and someone that has done some awesome things in the community and the space and uh, really done a great job in the syndication business. So uh, look forward to getting into that and having you guys hear the conversation. There were two, as always, specific things that stood out from this episode. Um, the first one, how Chris found a mentor. In this case, it was John. Uh, what I really found interesting there, what stood out to me was just how he uh, went about connecting with people, getting educated, looking for answers. And then finally, when he found John, how he brought him value and ended up getting kind of brought under the fold and then leaving his job to work for John and Tora full time and uh, continue to help kind of grow their business. And now he's doing a ton with social media and digital, their podcast. He basically is responsible for setting all that up. He does a lot of other things there. He kind of wears many hats. Um, but that was just something that really stood out to me. The second thing was they have an unbelievable plan for dealing with coronavirus and how it affects their tenants and their investing strategy. Probably the most detailed plan, especially the way Chris kind of outlined it off the cuff, uh, is towards kind of the back end, back end of the episode where he kind of just goes through what they're thinking about, talking to, explaining to their tenants, um, what their plans are with the banks, what their plans are with their insurance companies, property managers, how they're sending the messaging down the line and what their plan is to not only get through it, but then how to exceed and kind of grow the business from uh, whatever happens after this. So really, really interesting stuff. I couldn't believe how uh, good their plan was. And I learned a lot. There's some things just from that plan that I'm going to probably steal and use for my own. So um, definitely check that out. Today's tangible tip, Calendly. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar, it's a calendar coordinating app kind of a tongue twister, but basically it's just a way to schedule uh, very quickly with people. Um, for many of you that know, I cannot stand back and forth or redundant email or just unnecessary tasks. And I find scheduling to be one of those things where you're going back and forth, you're sending people times, they don't work, you're trying to get it basically figured out with other people, uh, just kind of a big headache. So Calendly has been a game changer. Um, I was using it for a while. Basically what it does is you can send someone a link and for a certain type of, let's say, activity or a certain type of meeting, they can schedule on certain days or certain times that you preset. So it gives external people outside your organization view of your calendar, uh, but depending on how you set the rules or policy, which is really simple, they can then just book times that are convenient for you and they can also be convenient for them. They just don't need to go back and forth. Like for example, the podcast, I only, I only, the podcast, for example, I only record and schedule on certain days and certain times because I batch the episodes. So when I'm scheduling with someone, instead of going back and forth, unless they throw out a time that only works for them, I just send them a link. It's the days and times that I'm already kind of set in podcasting mode. They just click that time and it automatically turns into an invite 
with the Zoom invite, with the uh, Zoom information rather, and turns into a calendar invite. So if you guys don't know that or aren't using Calendly or any tool, uh, it doesn't have to be Calendly. I'm not getting anything for saying that, but any tool there, there's a bunch. They're really good. That's just the one that I found has been um, really, really easy for me to implement. And it also plugs into your browser and plugs into your email tool. So uh, check it out. A lot of cool features there. Um, so, okay. Without further ado, here is the episode with Chris Grenzig. All right, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Um, I'm not even sure where to kick this one off. I mean, we go back to before real estate, uh, sure. to the college days and, uh, where we, we both went to Hofstra, you played soccer, I played golf. And, uh, we talked about this a little on your guys' podcast, mm-hmm. uh, the one that you and John do about how at that time in our lives, we weren't really focused on real estate. We were focused on some other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we could get into that for sure. But for those that don't know you and kind of where you're at today and kind of your transition, um, mind giving our listeners a little bit of a backstory on you, kind of what you were doing in your early 20s and then how you kind of shifted into real estate and then bring us up to current. Sure. So to not get into it too long, um, but graduated in 2014. Um, and I had no plan whatsoever. Didn't do any internships, didn't have any jobs lined up. My mom was freaking out. I had like one part-time job coaching at like a Long Island high school. Um, and then luckily Tyler hooked me up with a job coaching division two soccer up in Massachusetts. So I was like, you know, screw it. Like I've got nothing better to do. I've got nothing better lined up. Let's go try it. Um, so did that for a year. It was cool. I liked it. Um, but I really found that I missed New York a lot. Um, it'd been the first time I'd been away. So I'm, you know, grew up in Smithtown, Long Island, went to Hofstra, which is on Long Island. And then that was my first year like away. And I was like, I like having my family around too much. So came back, got another coaching job, but college coaching jobs at that level are part-time. So I need another job to support it. Instead of doing more youth coaching, I thought I might want to, you know, transition out of coaching and something into the business world. So I got a job as a cold caller at a small stock brokerage company on Long Island and did that for about a year and a half, give or take alongside. And it was awesome because it taught me a lot of good things of like, you know, you're dialing four or five, 600 calls a day and your closing rate is, you know, a percent of a percent. So, you know, persistence, hard work, seeing stuff pay off. Um, you know, how to talk on the phone, how to do sales, all that stuff. But there was just a misalignment of, I guess, values where it was very much focused on like, what can I make off this person I'm calling and not how much can I make for my client and share the ride alongside with them. So for me, that was like, no, nah, this isn't right for me. So um, while I was in the middle of that, I started looking at new things. My mom and my cousin uh, decided to buy a flipping course. So they were going to try to flip homes on Long Island and the surrounding area potentially. And there was like a weekend seminar where it's you go like 12 hours a day, Saturday and Sunday. It might've even been Friday night too, I forget. And they decided to drag me along to it. So this was January of 2016. So about a year, year and a half out of school, a little bit more. <clears throat> and that was my first introdu- introduction to real estate. So that was it. That was like, before that, all I'd ever done was live in a home growing up and rent the house at school. Um, And the example I always give for anybody that somewhat knows real estate or even knows, you know, just from their own houses, I thought asbestos was a type of mold. So like I literally had zero information, real estate background whatsoever. I didn't know how it worked. So from there, it was a, you know, steep learning curve. Um, My, both my parents had owned um, rental properties before I was born and even early years and then sold it off. So they had a little bit of knowledge. Um, My cousin was an agent. So he had a little bit of real estate background as well. And then we had the education. So learning curve for the next few months. And then the next six or seven months, we tried to flip homes on Long Island and just completely failed. Um, Didn't buy a home, didn't put one under contract, didn't come close, didn't fail to flip one uh, or anything. Um, And it was for a multitude of reasons, but the biggest one was just technically two, um, but it's really just our lack of execution and not staying with it long enough. Um, I fully believe that if we had stuck with it longer, because six months in the grand scheme of things isn't a long enough time to give something a good shot. Um, I think we could have pulled it off and figured it out. Um, The problem we were running into was the way the course was designed was um, it was based around mentorship with people that had already done it. 
but there was no mentors, quote unquote, within like a 50 mile radius. So no one in the tri-state area, no one on Long Island, no one in New York City, et cetera. So tough to get that intimate knowledge. And then two, it was based on quick calculations of renovation cost by square footage. As most people know, high cost of living area, your renovations are going to be much more expensive than what they were putting into the spreadsheet. So all of our numbers were always wrong. Mm. Um, But like I said, it was really more of execution because I know people now that are flipping hundreds of homes a year on Long Island. You know, I know we could have figured out the cost of stuff and, you know, changed the systems to make it work in our area. Um, But it just wasn't right. So what we decided to do was we said, hey, let's go out of our area. Maybe we can find something that works. And instead of trying to beat a dead horse and do it ourselves, let's see if we can find somebody that's already doing it and leverage their knowledge and experience and kind of use it as like a drift or a wake and kind of come in behind them and give ourselves a little bit of boost. So the way we decided to do that was by being a hard money lender on a flip in Pennsylvania. And we met this guy named Brian who was doing the flip. And through him, we met his cousin, John, who you, I don't know if you mentioned or if that was pre-recording, but John is one of the co-owners at Toro where I work now for the past three and a half years. And just through that started networking and stuff like that. And, you know, we lent the money in the flip and we just, we just, as we started to learn more, we were like, I don't think flipping's for us. Um, it was too short term, too high risk, not enough tax benefits, which my mom really needed. Um, cause she was retiring and, you know, she was tired of paying taxes. So, mm-hmm. um, we started looking at, while we were looking at that, we looked at flipping tax deeds down in Philly. And then eventually, uh, we started learning about multifamily, which is what John had transitioned over from. So John had bought 100, 150 homes down in Philly at auction. And then he had sold off most, if not all of his portfolio at that time and was, you know, on his way into multifamily, um, both on his own doing smaller, you know, multifamily. So eight units, 17, 48, 50, et cetera. And then had just started his company Toro, um, with his partner, Don. And what we decided to do was we had the same mentality of, okay, let's see if we can leverage John's experience and let's see how we can help out. So it was a few different ways. So the first deal we just invested in passively. Um, so he ran the property, he would get certain, you know, minimal fees and percentage of profits based on performance. And we were just along for the ride. The only caveat we asked for was, Hey, can we just grab coffee once a week? Can we jump on a conference call once a week and just ask you some questions, ask about the property, find out more about it, take trips and stuff like that. And he said, sure. Um, so we did that. And then from there, we just, as we started having those conversations, um, every week, um, we just found really good synergies. And as we were talking, he had, um, had the idea to start a meetup locally. And we said, Hey, we'll, we'll help you with that. Like, let us, you know, help organize, coordinate, get people going. Um, and then we started talking about like joint venturing on property. So helping raise money, help run it and stuff like that. Um, so we actually joint ventured on a 17 unit property in the same area as that eight unit. And then we joint ventured on an 82 unit property down in Jacksonville, Florida. And right around the time we were doing the 17 unit, I was still working as a stockbroker through all this. Um, and I hated it flat out hated it. Um, at that point I was ready to quit with nothing else lined up. And just one day while sitting down talking to John, um, just funny story. He's only like five or six years older than me and I'm 28. So he's like 33 now or something like that. maybe 32 mm-hmm. and just really funny, just very similar life stories. Like both grew up on Long Island, both went to college for sports. Um, you know, both were, I think he did coaching for a little bit. And then he had also worked as a stockbroker for the same people I had worked for just at a different company. And then he found real estate moved over into full time. So it was like, looking at where I wanted to be, but like three, four, five years ahead. And as I was just talking about and what I was you know, trying to do and get out and do real estate full time, he was like, well, you know, me and my partner are actually thinking about bringing somebody in to help us out. You know, truth be told, it's a little early, but you know, we can kind of, you know, throw you some dollars to help us out on like a trial period and let's see how it goes. So sat down with them, had a conversation and then like within a week quit, moved over there. Um, they're focused on larger multifamily syndications in the Southeast and Midwest. So, you know, five to $50 million, you know, 80 to 500 unit properties. Um, and that was August of 2016. 
Um, and since I've been there, we've acquired around 4,000 units, around $280 million worth. And now I'm kind of in a role where I handle a lot of our acquisitions and asset management, mostly in the Florida <clears throat> region of our portfolio, but you know, chip in everywhere. So um, yeah, that's kind of everything in a large wow. nutshell. Okay. And that's awesome because we've hung out a lot more recently and, you know, even spending time in college together, I did not know a lot of that detail. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting and it's always cool and, and funny to see how people progress or step into different things. Um, a couple of questions and points just to dig into there. Um, one, uh, how did you meet Brian? You said that was John's cousin. Um, was that just through general networking or investing? Yeah, I think it was my mom. My cousin went to a RIA event and met him there. To be honest, I don't really know. It was one of them to met him either through somebody or at some event and decided to lend him money. Flip did not go well. We did okay because we were the first position loan. He didn't do so well, um, but definitely learned a lot on like, you know, finding people, you know, doing better vetting of people, looking better at deals. So it was a good lesson, made money, thankfully, got our money back. Um, but yeah, it was, I think it was just through an event. Yeah, but that's just, it's kind of funny because I have some relationships that have kicked off and I'm sure you have these too. That's an example of one where you've got, it's led to something, maybe two, three, four connections down the road. You don't even yeah. necessarily remember the origin, but it's just a good reminder to keep networking and keep being proactive with networking, going to events, messaging people, having coffee conversations. Like you just don't know what something is going to turn into. And I have so many business ventures, real estate ventures that I can look back on. I'm not even sure how they originated, but people that just kind of came together and you start connecting people. It's just funny how that happens. And it sounds like that's kind of what happened with you. You kind of weaved a web of little connections and experiences from different places. And it led to you linking up with John through his cousin, through a flip in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. kind of all random. And then it led to now what you're doing full time and growing a business with Toro and making a huge impact there. And just, you guys have something really cool going on. So it's kind of funny. That's just something that I, I see and like think about a lot of times, just people don't really notice it's happening. And just the, the two things that stood out to me from uh, what you said is, I, I love the term. I've never heard this before, following in someone else's wake. Mm -hmm. Like you hear that term a lot, like, link up with people or find mentors, but it seems like that was a constant at the beginning of your story, getting connected with John, that you did it through following in someone's kind of wake or their path of what they've done to be successful, seeing what they're doing a couple of years down the road. And then also by adding value to them and picking their brain, either investing in their deal or through helping them something like a meetup. And then in return, they'll do a call with you. They'll bring you on. You just get closer to this person. You can start learning from them. So it seems like that's how you and John got connected. And then it kind of mm. went from there. I mean, from when you came on to then now where you are today, what was that like transition like? Yeah. So that's, it's actually a good question. Cause it's what I was thinking of. It's, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of education courses out there now, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I don't think you can replace experience. And I think the good thing about, I don't want to say mentorship. Cause I also think some, there's good mentorships and there's bad mentorships, just like anything else. And I think you got to, you know, understand where you are. And I don't know that I would consider mine a mentorship because it's a job, but I said, Hey, let me, you know, I don't say this to toot my own horn, but I took a pretty significant pay cut to move over at the time I did because I knew that it would be worth it. So did I pay for one, you know, in one way I sort of did. Um, but it was, you know, I had already done the educational route and at least for me, it didn't work. And I said, look, there's plenty of people that are doing it and they're going to have the experience of why certain things work or don't work. If I don't listen to them, that's my own fault, but at least I can learn from them. And then I've also found for me too, I learn way better by observing and being around things and hearing things multiple times and being able to then incorporate that into myself. So even when it was sports, it was always you know, playing with better players always made me significantly better quicker because it was you can watch and learn and see what they do. And you may not pick it up immediately, but you start seeing the same thing two, three, four, five times. You, know, you start to notice it and then you try to replicate and you bring it into your own stuff. And I think it's very similar in the business world too. It's, you know, when you start having conversations on, you know, how you look at a property, right? You get a new property and the conversation you have going to be very similar every time you have that conversation. So it was, you know, the first six, 12, 18 months, 
I'm sat right next to the two of them, basically doing grunt work and failing at it. But it was, you know, listening to them have conversations with brokers, with insurance between each other, um, you know, at lunch and just picking up little things here and there. And it's, you don't even start to realize until, you know, you hear, you know, the same thing over and over. Like if you hear the same question that they ask a real estate broker, you know, five times of, you know, why, you know, like I would have never thought to ask the question, why is the owner selling probably until I started realizing like, you know, until you bought a bad deal for somebody that's just trying to maximize value, you wouldn't know to ask that question. But I heard him ask it on every single call. And I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Because if it's just, well, you know, they're kind of finished, they're tapped out, they're just trying to get top dollar and get out. You know, maybe it's a good deal, maybe it's not. But if it's, hey, you know, this guy's underwater, you know, they've got, you know, their kids college, they need to pay for, you know, whatever, some sort of motivated seller, that's way more interesting. So it's little things like that, that I think you pick up kind of through osmosis as you're just around and in that environment that I think would take significantly longer than doing it on your own. 100%. And that's something that like, it, it kind of, for me, reminds me of why people don't give generic advice when someone just asks like, what should I do? Because there's a million things like John yeah. could have told you, Hey, like look in these markets and call these people and say these things, but you wouldn't learn start to finish how to have the conversation at each level or how to think or how to set up systems or where do we mm-hmm. put our leads or how do we do our follow-up unless you were sitting right next to them. So like, yeah. that's just something that you can take a course, you can pick people's brains on all day, all day, but unless you're either taking action and having a high risk of failing on your own or mm-hmm. just following in someone's wake, you know, it's very hard to do without that. So I guess just for anyone out there that's, let's say, you know, a W2 earner, they're thinking about transitioning maybe into real estate or something more entrepreneurial. It was interesting to hear you say that you were still doing the stock brokering full time and you were helping or bringing value to John or kind of doing some work on the side with him. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you decide or like, how did you think about doing it on the side versus doing it full time? And then like, what were you doing for him or what advice would you have for someone that's looking to bring value to someone while they still have a, a job? And then maybe, you know, how does it shift when you do it full time and then you can kind of go all into something? Yeah. I mean, one, I didn't really have a choice. You know, I was a, you know, a broke post-college kid, didn't have much of a choice, but to do it on the side. Um, you know, unless I wanted to go home and live with my parents and I did not want to do that. So, um, you know, didn't really have a choice, but to continue to do it. You know, the idea was, Hey, I want to leave this. Let's see if we can make this flipping deal work. And they sell you on the dream of making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So I was like, Oh, you know, within a year I'll be able to do it. And that obviously didn't happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you've got to take stock of where you are. You know, if you think you've got enough runway that you can afford to go into it, full time because you've got a, you know, a cash reserve saved up and you're in a good position. You know, if you've been working for 20 years and you've saved up, it's very different than, you know, someone just out of college or, you know, you've limited resources and stuff. I would encourage everybody to start part-time just to make sure that it is a viable business and it's something you like because you'll know very quickly if it's something you like, if you get home at seven o'clock on a Tuesday and you're tired and you either do some work or you don't do some work. Um, if you don't, maybe it is, maybe it isn't a good option, but if you do it, probably a good chance you like it and not, you know, the first week you start to do it because everyone's got that burst of adrenaline, um, to want to do something and stuff, but you know, two months, three months into it, you know, give it a, give it a shot, give it some time, see how it feels. Um, you know, I think, what was the second part of the question? I'm sorry. Um, it was, if someone is looking to like transition full time. Mm-hmm. to doing this, then what kind of like action should they be taking or like what type of value can they try to be bringing when they're still kind of a beginner? Yeah, that's, that's always tougher. Um, I think the, the notion of bringing value to someone has been, I don't want to say overhyped lately with like the, you know, the, the Gary V stuff and everything, but you know, obviously time is a big thing and you know, so if you can work for free or low cost labor, you can do that. But the problem becomes if I'm sitting here, I always try to reverse engineer it and reverse engineer it from how the person should be asking. So they need to reverse engineer how I'm thinking. And when I'm sitting there and I'm in a business running all the time and somebody comes to me and say, Hey, 
I want to get involved. What work can I do for you? There's not a lot for me, you know, like now I've got to do the work to come up of like what you need to do and I need to teach you and stuff like that. That's not always the best proposition for me because I may have, you know, underwriting that I can offload, but now I've got to spend extra time to teach you and there's nothing tethering you there. You're just offering free work. So the the risk is always like, Hey, I'm going to teach you how to do this. And then all of a sudden, you know it. And it's like, well, you can go off somewhere else. So it's like the way I think people need to start thinking more about bringing value to someone else is like, take stock of who you are and what you can actually do. And I don't necessarily mean like, if it's real estate, like what you can do in real estate, because if it's nothing, it's nothing. But you've got to be somewhat good at something. Like for me, the way I always thought about it, and I wish I thought about it in another way is like, if I was a a 50 year old guy with two young kids who played soccer and some kids came to me and said, Hey, can I come into the office for four hours a week and help you? And I'll train your kids one-on-one four hours a week. I'd be like, that's pretty interesting. I don't have to pay some trainer to do it. My kids will love it. I get something out of it and I get some free work. And that's something that I don't have to know anything about real estate. I can go out and do that. And it's the same thing for, you know, uh, coding or website design or, you know, Hmm doing fucking laundry. Like there's a lot of different things that you can bring value in different ways, but it's finding the person that has that bucket that needs to be filled. So if you call a hundred people, you say, Hey, I'll train your kids for four hours in soccer. They're like, what? I don't have fucking kids. They don't play soccer, but probably one out of a hundred does and it might work. So, you know, it doesn't always necessarily have to be, Hey, I'm going to work for free. I think people have, have a lot of other skills and things they can bring to the table that may indirectly bring value to that person's overall life that may make them say yes. So I think you can get creative with it too. Yeah. And I think the point there that stands out is it's, you know, I get stuck on the idea of it is self-awareness. You do have to know what you're good at and take, take survey of that. But there are so many people that are listening or are out there right now that may downplay or not really know or think about tangibly like their skills but they have skills they just Mm -hmm. don't know how they can apply them like like if you ask someone on the spot like what are your skills stuff that they do every day that actually is a skill like it doesn't just jump to mind like you don't think about like your networking abilities or your organizational abilities or your whatever like social media or your technical abilities like it's hard to kind of put that top of mind so i don't know do you have anything that's like tangible. You gave a couple examples there, but for yeah. someone out there that's listening right now, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to actually make a, an effort this next quarter to try to bring value to some people. You know, what can I tangibly do to try to do that? Easiest one is if you're younger, find somebody that's a small company that's older and something in technology, right? Most younger people, technology is almost second nature now, whether it's social media or website or video software and you know, any of that stuff, even if it's basic, like just the ability to post to Instagram or Facebook, a lot of people don't understand or like how to create graphics or like how to find certain things. Like it may seem so very basic to you, but I've learned very recently in the last 12 to 18 months, how much the older generation struggles. And the more surprising thing is how, how, a lot of the older generation is against it because they're afraid to not show how little they understand and they don't want to, you know, come across as not understanding it. Like there's a lot of people who struggle with it and they don't want to appear as if they can't handle it, which Mm -hmm. is very interesting and something I've realized a lot lately. And it's something I used to get very frustrated. I still do when we are slow to implement new, new technology into our business. And in the last even six months, it's been much more apparent to me how much of an effort it is um, for people to grasp and understand because it's so second nature to me. And it's Mm -hmm. so second nature for me to be able to figure it out as well. Like I know that's just something I'm very good at. Like I can go online, I can figure it out, I can put the hours and I can make it work. Like most things I could probably teach myself from a technical know how to do standpoint. Um, But not a lot of people have that, especially as you get older. So Anybody younger, if it's just, I would find, you know, if you even know how to design a basic website, like through 
Wix or GoDaddy or WordPress. Just start searching real estate in your area or just real estate online if that's what you're interested in and find old websites and then call them Mm because they'll love a phone call. And just be like, hey, I'd love to help redesign a website for free. All I want is just some of your time or something, you know, whatever you're looking for. And see what they say. They may not give a shit about their website. You have no idea. Um, But there's a lot of stuff you can offer that way. I think, what's some other things I think you could do? Um, A good example was one we did personally. For a while, we had a kid, you know, we were trying to make a push into like, as we have the social media and marketing and content creation space, um, I was doing a lot of the video editing by myself and I was starting to get to the point where I was just too much to handle. I was staying in the office till eight, nine o'clock every day and it was just too much and just got a random email just like, Hey, you know, my name's Rob. Um, and I do, you know, I grew a YouTube channel for a toy store I owned and I'd love to help you, you know, grow your YouTube channel and help you with your video stuff. And I was like, sure. So shot him an email. I, you know, let it fall through the cracks a couple of times to his credit. He kept following up, eventually got coffee like twice. And then he started coming into the office like three times a week for a few hours, do some video stuff, help out. And then, you know, he would listen in on management calls. He would sit in on our meetings. We'd go get lunch Mm -hmm. and, you know, he could pick my brain and we would just talk and stuff like that. Um, He got to come down on either one or two of our trips down to Florida. I forget how many. Um, you know, he had to, he paid his own way, but you know, he, you know, we said, yeah, sure. Come down like no big deal. So he got to come down on a trip with us and like, ask us questions, ask our manager question, ask our, you know, contractors questions on site, see how we do stuff. So it's like, you know, that was a perfect thing where it's like, I may have been the first person he asked, I may have been the hundredth person, but it was just the right place, right time. And, you know, just the, you know, the right things came across at the same time. So um, you know, the technology is a big one, especially if, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you have a moderate understanding. That's really good. I mean, those are two examples that most of this audience is pretty young and tech savvy, I'd say. Yeah. So that's an immediate one. Like if uh, half the people that I interview on here, and I'm sure half the people you interview on your podcast, they're a little older, they're good at one part of the business, but they're not maybe as savvy as they could be. I hear so many investors and real estate business people that come on here and say, I'm just not that good technically, or I'm not good with mm-hmm. social media. They understand there's value in it. There's a need yeah. for it, but they kind of all have that need. So if you're a younger digital tech savvy person listening to this right now, that could be an easy door for you to open to segue into a mentorship or getting connected with someone in business, bringing value to them. Because I do hear that constantly. How can I bring value to someone that's already worth X amount of dollars or has this many connections? I'm just a kid. Well, that's an example right there that we just talked about ways you can bring value to someone that you may not think they need anything, but trust me, everyone needs something. I don't care who you are. Everyone Mm -hmm. has problems. Everyone has annoyances. Even the billionaire whose kid can't learn how to play soccer. If a coach comes along and says, I'll do it for free. And they actually like this person. They trust this person. You're taking something off their plate. So perfect example there, Chris. Um, What I'd like to do next, just move on into kind of the the day-to-day of the syndication business, and Mm -hmm. then maybe just move to kind of the, the Corona economics that you're seeing and just that's huge right now. I want to, I want to touch on that. I know you're very tapped into the market. So um, just from a high level though, before we get into Corona, can you give the listeners just a high level on what syndication is and how the day-to-day of the business typically works as far as finding deals, finding investors, raising money, what it all looks like? Yeah, sure. So syndication is basically, you know, we go out and buy you know, any commercial property. I mean, you can do it on any property, but basically you go and buy a property, you go out and you get debt for 60 to 80% of the property's value. And then the rest of it has to be made up of equity. And then what we do is we go out and we raise money from either individual investors or, you know, investment groups that want to commit money to be part of the equity and equity, obviously, you know, gets rewards for the upside and the downside. They're taking the risk on the property being worth more in the future and they, you know, get, um, come along for the ride with that upside. What we do for putting it all together is we have some fees and some profit sharing structures in it. Um, so the way we do it, there's plenty of ways to structure it, but the way we do it, um, we do a small acquisition fee up front. Um, we do asset management fees, you know, while we hold the property, um, based on whatever income we collect. So the more we collect, the 
you know, more we put in our pocket. And then when we hit certain profit hurdles, um, we take more of the profit into our pockets. So the way we tend to structure it, um, it's called a preferred return. Typically it's around 8%. What that means is the first 8%, let's say, John, you were the investor, you invested hundred thousand dollars. Um, the first $8,000 every year into your pocket, I don't take any percent of. So if it was five years, it would be the first $40,000 back to you. I don't take any part of. Once you hit that 8% per year, then it gets split according to the agreement. So a typical one is like 70-30. So that would be for every dollar over that, 70 cents would go to you as the investor and 30 cents would go to me as the sponsor, syndicator, general partner. They're all the interchangeable. Um, and you can have multiple hurdles. You can have one hurdle. You could have no hurdle. It could just be a straight 80-20 split where every dollar that comes in, 80 cents goes to you, 20 cents goes to me. You can. There's a million different ways to skin the cat. Um, but basically, it's a way to say, hey, the better I perform by operating this property on the investor's behalf, the more I make. And that's kind of the profit sharing structure. So um, that's what syndication is. You can do it for multifamily. You can do it for um, retail, office. You could even do it for single family homes if you really wanted to. Just might not be enough dollars to actually support it and make sense. Um, but for us, the day-to-day, the big way to spin it is we spin two wheels simultaneously. We spin deals and we spin money. So both debt and equity. And we have to make sure that as we grow as a company, those two wheels grow somewhat simultaneously. One will always be larger than the other. Um, Like right now we have zero deal flow, really. Um, Not that we have a ton of money flowing in either, but um, due to the virus, but you know, you want to grow those things together, right? Because you need money to buy deals and you need deals to place money. Our job is basically putting all the different pieces together, closing on the property, operating the property, and then, you know, eventually most likely selling the property. We don't really refinance and hold too long because of that profit sharing structure that's in place. Mm-hmm. Um, but day to day, you know, there's a lot and it changes day to day. So, you know, obviously different requests come in and things you have to do, but um, every two weeks we have a call for all of our properties with our property managers. So what we, you know, we sit in an office in New York and our properties are throughout the States. Um, you can either have some companies will have their own property management arm. Some will third party, a lot will third party manage. So we have companies that handle the property management. So they're day to day, they hire the people that work on the property, you know, nine to five, that's their regular job. You know, they're leasing their management on the property. Um, they're the maintenance teams, um, things like that. And then there's the property managers who oversee all those people. Um, we'll have calls with them every two weeks just to see, you know, what's going on at the property, how our capital projects are going, you know, what's leasing like, what's collections like, how do our expenses look? Um, is there any problems we need to be aware of? Is there any, um, you know, problems that have occurred in the last two weeks, et cetera. Um, we'll get financials for all the properties on a monthly basis. We'll review those. So any sort of, you know, just like any business, it's a profit and loss statement. So your income, different line items, your expenses, different line items, and you'll kind of look at that, compare it to the budget you put together, um, things like that. Um, we'll keep our investors updated every quarter or every month, depending upon how people call. Um, and then interspliced with that is obviously we're continually um, working relationships to find new deals, whether it's brokers. Um, sometimes we'll talk to mortgage lenders. We'll talk to our property managers. We'll talk to people in those markets um, to try to source new deals. Um, we're constantly mm-hmm. talking with individuals and groups who are interested in investing in, you know, properties that we look to acquire, um, you know, continue to have those conversations. So when a property does become available, we can present it to them. And, you know, we have a lot of those initial conversations out of the way. Um, and then, you know, just like any other business internal stuff. So, you know, we have our, every Monday we have our own meetings. Um, we're reviewing our own financials, Um, you know, we're doing our own operations, you know, we're looking at different ways to expand our own business, but, um, yeah, every, you know, a lot of different things that go into it. Got it. Okay. So it was a really good high level answer. And I think you did, you gave a lot of the the complicated strategies, very, um, like simple digestible Mm -hmm. explanations. Like uh, I think a lot of people are confused on syndication as far as like profits and they hear the hurdles and the waterfalls and it's so confusing to them, but basically 
the way you explained it, it's my favorite term in real estate, alignment of interest. Yeah. And it basically just combines an investor with basically a organizer. And if they can have alignment of interest and share profits, then it's mutually beneficial. So just mm -hmm. one thing to dig into on that. Sure. Um, it's, it's probably the hottest topic uh, up to now. It may change with Corona and different you know, market fundamentals, distressed landlords, whatever. But uh, right now, what are your guys' main marketing strategies or deal finding strategies? And and I guess just to tack on one follow to that is, you know, in like John's episode on Joe Fairless, he talks a lot about cold calling and how he's doing hundreds of calls a day. And then he was writing handwritten letters and all these very like intense manual things. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of it that, you know, maybe could be automated now or or based on relationships with brokers and people. So um, can you just walk the listeners through what your guys' um, acquisition strategy or marketing strategy for finding deals in, who's on a team, or what you guys do from a tangible level? Yeah, so I know what you're talking about, and the you've almost got to break it down into two different categories because what's happened in the last five to 10 years is any deal that we're looking for at Toro has now been bought and sold probably at least once, if not two or three times in the last five to 10 years, because we're looking in, you know, more populated cities. So any, you know, we have certain cities that we look at, but we want a certain population in those cities. So for example, we're not looking in a, you know, Asheville or, you know, a, what's another smaller North Carolina town that I don't know, but we're not looking in those areas because one, there's not a lot of inventory for larger apartment complexes. And two, there's just not as many resources that we feel we're a bit more exposed to the market. So like, let's say there's a property manager that isn't going well, there's going to be way more property management available in a city like Atlanta than there is a city like, you know, Murfreesboro, right? Like they're two very different markets. So you've got to understand that, that, you know, there's just a little bit less risk in larger cities from our standpoint from some of the resources, also the travel is easier. Um, and then, you know, we look for markets that have, you know, other good indicators as well. Um, but because of that, that deals have sold now, most of the properties that we look at are owned by some sort of, I don't want, I'll say sophisticated investor, but a lot of them are not, you know, sophisticated necessarily. But where I say that is they already have the established relationship with commercial brokers. And it makes it very difficult to create a better relationship than a broker is going to have with the limited time and resources that we have, right? A broker spends eight to 10, maybe even 12 hours a day, five, six, seven days a week, creating relationships, talking about deals, whatever. They know probably every single owner in that market for the types of properties that we buy, 100 units, 200, 300, 400, 500 units, you know, 10, 20, 30, $50 million dollars where John was talking about, and I still agree now, but I think it could change in the next few years. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity still direct to owner in various forms in, you know, the 10 to 50, 60, 70 unit space and still in the less populated areas like I'm talking about, because it's still a lot of mom and pop owners, individuals or long-term owners where, you know, there's probably not a broker or an agent breathing down their neck every couple of weeks asking how their property is going or what they're looking at or trying to sell them a deal and already have that relationship. So you can write them, you know, a handwritten letter or you can do it through, you know, some direct mail service or you can try, you know, calling their phone number or you can try knocking on their door because um, they probably don't have, you know, a ton of people cold calling them because the value prop for an agent to call that owner there's just less money for that agent or broker to make because the deal is much smaller and the percentage they would make on that deal is less. Um, so if you're looking to buy a 20, 30, 40, 50 unit, you can probably still do a ton of direct mail, cold calling, um, you know, knocking on doors. You can try, you know, skip tracing. You'd try Facebook ads. We don't really do that though. So I'm not really up to date on a lot of that stuff. Sure. Um, you know, I would say 80%, if not 90% of our deal flows through commercial brokers, whether it's on market, off market, whatever. Um, but then, you know, we do get some deal flow from, like I said, mortgage lenders. Um, we do get some deal flow from just knowing some other owners that are looking. 
Um, we get it from our property managers um, and just, you know, other professionals in the area. Sometimes we'll, you know, lawyers, sometimes accountants, sometimes might let us know. Um, but most of it is just from commercial brokers because it's incredibly tough to compete. Got it. Okay. Um, I do have a lot more questions as far as syndication and I'm sure we've had a bunch of syndicators on, but I think you give a unique perspective on the business because one, you're a little bit, I would say newer to it. And you also have kind of a perspective of a little bit of the residential investing strategy, some of that bigger pockets, creative house hacks, single family residential stuff. And then you have a lot of experience with the bigger stuff. So we might need to do a part two, but I didn't want to uh, get this episode wrapped up without talking about good old Corona and what it's doing to the economy and, you know, your outlook on it, because um, you see a lot of different perspectives on it. I think you've had a very fair, neutral, level-headed perspective on Mm -hmm. investing. And also you guys have, um, maybe you say exactly how many, but you have tons of units in the marketplace. You've acquired Mm -hmm. tons of units and, you know, you have a management strategy as far as maintaining them and making sure that they do well and exceed expectations amidst the potential recession or, you know, downturn or blip on the, the radar. So let me just ask you this. Mm-hmm. Right now, this is um, 328.20. The U.S. is pretty much, I would say, in full-out quarantine. Um, there is some aid and stimulus that was just passed mm-hmm. uh, that should maybe boost things. But all in all, there's very strange, I guess, economic drivers in a couple of different directions right now. So all that said, what is your current outlook on, let's say, the next quarter And what are you guys doing as a business to make sure you guys are okay and maybe take some actions to hedge and, you know, make an opportunity of it? Yeah. So like you said, it is, you know, March 28th. So this all really kicked off strong, maybe only a week, week and a half ago. Um, And, you know, we're in New York or you're part-time in New York, I'm full-time. So it's been a little different for us than it is some other areas. So for us investing out of state, everything's also like a half a week, week behind. Um, so like where New York was probably two, maybe even two and a half weeks ago, things really started getting like people worried and things kicking off. It's only been in like the last week that, you know, it's really started hitting some other areas. Um, because it happened so late in March, most of our operations in March has just been status quo. Most of our rent was already collected and most of our expenses were already handled. Our mortgage payments were already made all that stuff. So March was fairly regular. We had very little, if anything, um, occur in March that's going to affect us. Um, And then really, you've kind of asked this question at an uncertain time because right now we have no idea how many people are, you know, going to pay or, you know, try not to pay even though they can and how many people physically can't pay. Um, you know, we're in the, mostly in the C class area. I would say our average rent across the board is probably 700 bucks plus or minus, you know, 30 bucks, give or take, I would say maybe 725 probably. Um, so what is good that I like is one, you know, our average rent is far below the median for the country, um, which is helpful. Um, you know, one of the things that makes it better for us is you just mentioned the stimulus package. Most of our residents are probably going to qualify because um, you have to make, I believe, under $75,000 a year or as a couple, I think it was one fifty. I don't even remember. Um, two, they're saying, I think it's 1200 for adults and 500 for kids. You know, that if you're mm-hmm. a single, you know, that covers your, you know, your average rent and that, you know, that average rent is probably, you know, 750 for a two bedroom. So really it's per person. It's much lower. Um, if it's a family, they're getting two, three, 4,000 bucks. So that makes us feel better. I don't know if everybody's going to qualify. I don't understand the specifics of that, but that obviously helps. Um, but the immediate actions we've done sure. is one, you know, we first got in touch with all our investors, let them know, Hey, this is a fluid situation. It's going to change day to day, week to week. We're going to do our best to keep you updated without drowning you in emails. Um, two, we, we let them know, Hey, all distributions are, you know, not going out for the foreseeable future doesn't mean we're not going to be cash flow positive, but we don't want to have to distribute cash and then potentially ask for it back if we need it, God forbid. So right now we're halting all distributions to investors. Again, doesn't mean we're not profitable. Some probably still will be, some will probably break even or some will fall in the red a little bit, you know, remains to be seen. Um, But, you know, we're just halting that for now. Um, Three, we've stopped um, any 
um, in-person showings of units. We've stopped letting people into the leasing office. Um, we've cut down all maintenance requests to emergencies. Um, and if they see any signs of sickness or coughing or whatever, they don't even go into the unit. Um, you know, we bought them all like, um, like big, not like hazmat suits, but like painter's gear and stuff like that. You know, not, not super expensive, but just like something to help, you know, gloves and stuff that when they're going into units, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then other things we've done is, you know, just trying to come up with ideas to help our tenants find jobs if they don't have it, as well as, you know, to be able to support themselves. So we've worked out, you know, for people that have, can prove they've been affected, um, we're going to work out some sort of payment plan for them. Um, we've cut any increases on renewals. So if your rent was 750, you can renew it 750. Um, if there was an increase, um, we've offered some people to go month to month without any sort of fee. Um, we've cut all late fees. Um, what else? Um, I know there's something else. Um, we've been putting together resource packages for all our tenants. So, you know, local community efforts, local help, um, you know, different like, uh, offerings. Like if you can't go get groceries, there's people that will go shop for your groceries for you. Um, so just putting together all the resources we can in one concise area that they can find the links. Mm -hmm. Um, we're also doing, um, I'm forgetting one. Oh, anytime we see somebody that's hiring. Um, so like I know Publix is hiring in areas. Amazon is hiring in areas. Um, wow. if you go get hired by them, we told them before April 15th, we'll waive your month in May. Um, just as a way to, Hey, great employer. We know they're getting paid, you know, a 8% concession in the grand scheme of things is not the end of the world. Um, you know, it's a way to continue to collect rent. So, we're trying to come up with different creative ways um, to keep people employed, keep people paying, paying on time um, and things like that. Um, you know, we are going to reduce some expenses, cut some expenses. So landscaping will reduce, marketing will reduce, um, our admin costs will go way down because the leasing office is closed. We can't file eviction, so our eviction costs will go down. Mm -hmm. um, we've spoken to um, all of our lenders. Um, we have not done any loan mods or forbearance yet. Um, I think everybody should be very cautious to do any of that, especially on the commercial side, because it does, it does show up as a mark in the future. Like when you do an application, it'll ask, have you ever done a loan mod or any oh. forbearance? Um, I don't know, you know, if every single owner does forbearance, you right. know, how bad does it be? But if it's 50%, you know, what side of the coin do you want to be on? So I'd be very hesitant to just take forbearance if you don't need it, need it. Um, you know, we've talked to how our utility company is going to handle it. We've talked to all our contractors about work and, you know, if we're stopping work, continuing work, so that's, you know, property specific. Um, but it's been reduced probably by 60, 70, 80% across the you know portfolio stopping work. Um, and we're just kind of taking it day by day and trying to come up with different ways to, you know, keep people paying, um, but also keep people safe. That is a great outline and a great plan. You just listed like 10 things that landlords can do right now tangibly to shield themselves or hedge themselves in a potential bad mm -hmm. quarter or two that's coming ahead. Like those were like really solid, tangible things as opposed to just kind of like putting your arms up and saying, well, I'm in trouble. And that again, we're going to have to do a part two, Chris, because there's so much here, but you know, the people that have their arms thrown up and say like, I can't, or, you know, well, I guess I'm going to be in trouble. Those are going to maybe be the distressed landlords that, you know, you can buy something from, or they're going to be putting their stuff on the market. And then that could be where opportunity comes. But just for the sake of time, Chris, we could do a quick version of the show wind down. If you got a couple more minutes sure. and we'll just fly through some rapid fire questions and then we'll get you out of here. All right. Sure. Okay. So, you know, I'm looking for something like this right now. I've been experimenting with a couple and I, right. I haven't found a great answer for it as far as project management tools, task management tools, especially in the real estate space. And then when I went down the, the rat hole of it, you have your Asana, Trello, Monday.com, you have your data tables, your air tables, smart mm -hmm. sheets. So I know you guys just implemented a new one, Monday.com. Yep. I'm very right. curious to hear one, how you like it in a high level summary and then two, what you're using it for in a high level summary. Sure. So we, 
we've been doing the Monday meetings internally at Toro, like I told you, to get a better handle on things we need to do week to week. Because we kind of looked at ourselves and said, hey, this isn't as good as it can be. Stuff falls to the cracks. So we started doing that with just pen and paper taking notes. And it really helped. And then what we said was, all right, how do we make this better? Because it would be typing things up, printing things out, and then we had a stack of paper and it was just crazy. So we started looking at software to just handle that aspect of it. And we looked through a lot of the same ones you talked about. And we did a trial for Monday. We did a trial for Asana. We did a trial for Trello, I think, too. And we just really liked Monday the most because it was robust yet very user-friendly um, as well as it was just aesthetically pleasing as well. Um, and it just had really good integrations and internal automations and they're continually uh, updating different things. So we decided to use that and we've built it out from there. Um, I don't think if you want to get like super in the weeds and like create all these crazy systems, it's definitely not the most robust out there, but it's definitely like, hey, if you got Monday tomorrow, you know, tomorrow afternoon, you can have stuff in place. Like it's very easy to implement. So for me, that was important because I didn't want to spend six months learning a program and then have it ready. So like I wanted user-friendly, easy to use day one, but also have some good stuff. So we've been using it mainly for the task management stuff um, internally. We've also started using it for our deal pipeline a little bit where it's more of just to keep track of like what deals are out there and like some high level information and just like, you know, some informational stuff. We're not, because our, our deal timelines are very long and slow. Um, it's not a lot of volume. So like these deals might be marketed for two months, three months. They might, you know, have due diligence and contracts for two, three, four, five months. So, you know, it can take half a year for these properties to finally trade. So it's not very sophisticated, but we've done that. Um, been using it a lot for, you know, a lot of our, um, video editing and social media content creation, posting, and kind of keeping track of, um, that's something I've done more with it. Um, trying to think what else we use it for. Um, we use it a little bit for investors, just keeping track of like who's seen the deal, who hasn't seen the deal, what their thoughts were, things like that. So, um, we're just trying to slowly build it out more and more. Um, I did hear Airtable is very good. And when we looked at it, I think it would be, it's definitely a little bit more <clears throat> robust and a little bit more super complicated. Robust. Super detailed. Yeah. Um, but it seemed, yeah. it seemed to be very applicable directly to real estate itself, especially if you're more in like a higher volume, quick transaction business, like wholesaling or an agent or flipping um, or maybe even like Airbnb stuff, if you got tenants coming and going, you know, every few days, I think that might be a good option to look at as well, but I really haven't dug too deep into it. Got it. And then just for analyzing deals and tracking your investors, do you use any deal analyzing software, Excel, Google Sheets, and then just for investors, do you use a CRM? Um, so we use just Excel when we analyze deals. Um, and I think people overcomplicate it, you know, a model is a model. It's only as good as the information you put into it. Um, you know, where, especially for us, right. If you start, if you're a fund and you've got different assets and you've got different weighted values of investors, you might want to start looking at software like Argus or different things, or I don't know who else has one. That's the only one I know. Um, but for us, it's, it's all basic math. It's adding, it's subtracting, it's dividing, it's multiplying. Your most complicated formula is IRR. And that's one formula in Excel that's very easy to use. Um, it's really just, you know, are you buying the deal cheap enough? Are you underwriting conservative enough? And is the information you have good enough? That's really underwriting in a nutshell. So don't overcomplicate that. You can use an Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of CRM, we are, we're trying to get better at that. We still haven't found the best thing to use. So we tried to use Monday as a CRM. I'm, I don't know that's going to work. Um, we use back office software for our deals called Juniper Square, which has a CRM, but it's not robust at all. It's very not good. Um, we looked at a couple different companies, just nothing we haven't really loved. Um, we are importing all our MailChimp stuff into Active Campaign, So I think that might work better from like a CRM standpoint. Um, but that's like, we just started doing that in the last week or two. So I'm still very new at that. Okay. 
Cool. And uh, I'm sure there's going to be more on that we could dig into because I know you guys use some other tools and just kind of how you operate and send stuff out. So tangible stuff, we could talk about more, but um, just to kind of put a, a, a button on everything that we're doing. Um, what is next for you and Toro in 2020 and beyond? Right now, who knows, right? Um, <laughs> you know, the, the immediate future, we've got a deal in Jacksonville. We're closing in a couple of weeks. So it's making sure everything's right for that. Um, that's been under contract for four or five months. And, you know, now this has hit, um, we, we feel fine still closing because we're buying with a loan assumption at a much higher cap rate than the market. So we're be, because the debt's like 5% in a much lower world, we're buying it like a six and a quarter cap and our debt is only 70%. So we feel pretty well insulated to still take it down and go forward, even with everything that's going on. Um, so it's really just making sure everything's tightened up for that. Um, we do have two properties under contract to sell that both just got extended. So we'll see how those go. Um, other than that, it's just maintaining our deals right now and figuring out what's going to happen, you know, to not lose our shirt on any of these deals and, you know, our investor shirt. Um, and then beyond that, it's really just internal stuff. So big one is, you know, just kind of getting some of our stuff that has accumulated and gotten a little, rusty and clunky, you know, a little bit more streamlined. So the marketing stuff that, you know, the investor CRM that you brought up, um, you know, working from home is definitely exposed some of that stuff where, you know, we're six people in an office, we all sit right next to each other. So it's, you know, Hey, I need this done. You just say something and it happens or, you know, for the most part. So now it's working from home, you know, some of that stuff gets exposed a little bit, not that we're necessarily exposed to the market, but it's like, okay, here's a, here's a weak point we didn't necessarily know about. And it's like tighten some of those things up. So, um, we're just using this as an opportunity to kind of sure up some of our own foundational stuff with the company, um, which is somewhat of a blessing in disguise in disguise. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're not burdened by a big payroll or anything like that. Um, which is good. Um, so we can kind of stay status quo probably for the rest of the year if we really had to but obviously we don't want to. Um, but you know, we'll, in the next few weeks and months, we'll, you know, start to reach out to some people as, you know, people start to become distressed or not distressed. We'll continue to talk to equity and see how people are viewing the market and things like that. Um, you know, any commercial real estate, if somebody's saying, you know, Hey, I found a distressed deal today. It's not distressed because of this virus. It was already distressed. So, um, it's still too early for some of that stuff. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, what happens in the next few months and you know how things shape out from a deal acquisition sourcing standpoint, but it's going to be tough to buy anything. Cause we, before we buy anything, we have to go tour it. We walk every single unit during due diligence. We have every single environmental physical aspect of the property inspected. I'm sure shit not walking 200 units and getting infected. So I don't know who the <laughs> hell's going to do it. So it's like, how do you go? How do you go and buy a multifamily property where everybody's home and you have to walk every unit, but you're not going to walk. Like, how does that work? So that's wild concept that people, yeah, so, I mean, you get, I guess you technically don't have to walk every unit, but I'm not buying anything without walking every unit or our team walking every single unit. Like I don't walk someone units, I walk, yeah. or an inspector or somebody or, or someone from your team. That's, that's something yeah. I think people are totally just hearing you say that people are missing the boat on that 100%. They're thinking they can buy a hundred unit property in this time where everyone has to be quarantined hearing you say that it really just struck me everyone's home so you're gonna yeah. go through 200 units where 200 people are home that's yeah. i mean you could safe. you if nobody was sick like let's say in a world nobody was sick and it was just people were home you can do that like you can everybody's least you give people 48 hours notice no and, no no 100 100 yeah. i'm saying just i just right now no i i know you know that i just wanted to clarify for somebody else yeah um and just also clarify it's when we walk every single unit, it's our property management team, maintenance team, and us will split up into, you know, two, three, four, five groups and everybody will walk 20 to 50 units each to see every property. And then we put a report together. That's how that works. Um, but yeah, it's like, there's, you know, new hurdles to overcome to be able to buy a property. So, you know, right now we're on, you know, hold, you know, our main focus is our properties our company, and then we'll see how, you know, things kind of expand over the following months. 100%. All right, Chris, you are doing a ton of 
social media and digital as well as the real estate business. Again, we're going to need to do a part two and just talk strategy and dig into a lot of the stuff. But for sure. right now, what is the best way for people to connect with you, follow your content, learn about you and get in touch with you? Yes. So uh, we have our own podcast, which you've been on. It's called the Real Estate Investing Experience. Um, it's on every single platform or you can go to the reiexp.com. Um, our company website is tororep.com, T-O-R-O-R-E-P.com. Um, you can follow me on basically any social media by searching Chris Grenzig or, you know, at Chris.Grenzig on Instagram. That's the main one. Um, you can email me if you want, Chris at tororep.com. Um, that's probably, if you have direct questions there, Instagram is definitely my most active. Um, but yeah, that's basically it. All right. Awesome. Chris. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing your story and continuing to create the content you've been putting out. You've been doing an awesome job just sharing value and teaching people that may be looking to learn about real estate, but also syndication. So thank you for that. Uh, before we hop, any last parting words or uh, call to actions? I think it's interesting where we were talking about creating value and then you just started talking about social media and not to get too deep into it, but like I struggled very early on to like do it because I was like, this was a year ago or so. And it's like, I've only been doing real estate for two, three years at that point in like the grand scheme of things. And I really only know my shit in like the last six to 12 months. And I held off doing something for a while. And it was because I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I can't do anything. But then what I started realizing is I maybe in like a scale of one to hundred, I'm at 20 or 30 or 50 or 70. Who the hell knows, right? It's arbitrary. But even if I'm at 10, there's somebody that's at nine that can pick up a little bit of value from me or somebody mm -hmm. at five that can pick up a little bit. So what I decided was like, hey, I may not be the smartest and I may not have the most experience, but I know there's something that I can talk about and bring to the table that will help at least some people. And that was worth it for me. So the same way of like where you're thinking about value, maybe you're not the world's leading social media expert and you can't create the best graphics in the world. Or, you know, maybe you think I'm not the best, you know, soccer player in the world and I can't teach their kids something. Probably good shot. You're better than somebody at it and you can help them get to where you are close to it and at least help boost them up. So if you're thinking, hey, maybe I don't know enough or I'm not good enough or I don't have enough experience, good chance you haven't more than somebody else and it can be enough to create that value problem. 100%. Chris? Awesome answer. Thank you for coming on. Um, best of luck to you, Toro, uh, in 2020 and beyond. You guys have a lot of big things going on. I could tell you you're going to be fine through all this and uh, probably turn out a lot better than most and expand the business. So thanks again, man. All the best and uh, keep crushing it. Yep. Thank you.